Howdy and welcome to 127 on the mic. This sermon was recorded on February 19th from our college pastor, John Davison, as we walk through week one of our mini-series, Sex and Dating. We hope that you guys enjoy. I gotta present to you what the Bible like really clearly says about something, um, while at the same time presenting to you clearly what the Bible does with that sin issue. And I, I know this is probably sensitive uh, for the people in the room. It, it has to be. And we're gonna see why it is in a second. Um, I had planned on, it's going to drive me crazy, and do I need to stop? You can turn it down if you want to, it's just feeding back real bad. And so, um, I had planned on going after like, hey guys, hear me say this, and then hey girls, hear me say this, these two different weeks, and the Lord has just been shifting um, what uh, I was thinking about into this space of you need to cover like the relationally like difficult part of sex and then get into the dating side of it and just kind of cannonball splash everybody with all of that. And so girls, I told you this morning that you could prepare your amens uh, toward some guys. Uh, and this is probably still going to be available, but be careful when you say that. Uh, but also this is going to be going at everybody. Okay, because this is, this is sort of what I, what I need you to hear, what I, what I need you to understand. For the Christ followers in the room, the only way that you will live life with purpose is to understand your purpose. But what normally happens in a majority of people, uh, even in, the, in, in like the Christian world, is that you, you desire to live life for your pleasure not for your purpose. And I'm going to read a couple of verses to you that will help us understand this in the book of Ephesians. And Paul is talking about this, starting in verse 3. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ, for He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before Him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for Himself according to the good pleasure of his will, not according to your pleasure, but according to his good pleasure. Psalm 115, three, you should have that memorized, but God is in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. If you, if you keep going, Romans chapter nine, this is, this is a good space just for us to hang out. For those of you that have tried to journey through Romans, you probably got stuck here and wanted to quit. Romans chapter nine, starting in verse 19. It says, you'll say to me, therefore, why then does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, a mere man, to talk back to God? Will what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Or has the potter no right over the clay to make from the same lump one piece of pottery for honor and another for dishonor? And what if God, wanting to display his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience objects of wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy that he prepared beforehand for glory? He's, he's putting us in like the proper space. If you go back to the book of Ephesians, you don't have to chase me there. I'm just going to read you what Paul says here in verse 8. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is, a, it is God's gift, not from work, so that no one can boast. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us. Okay, are you catching the, the drift of what is happening here? In all of these spaces, in, in everything that Paul is saying to us in Romans and in Ephesians, what we see in the Psalms is that God has created you 
for a purpose for his pleasure, not for your own. And this is a, this is a big thing for us to hold on to because you have a purpose. Your desire for pleasure does not define your purpose. God's pleasure does. This is, this is why I think Chick-fil-A workers lie to you every time. When you say, thank you, and they say, my pleasure, no, your job, not their pleasure. Okay, there be, there's some weird ones that are working there, and weird, that's a little bit aggressive for me. There are people that just really love that industry. Most of the time, the people that come to eat there are kind of jerks anyway, and for them to still respond in like, hey, that's my pleasure, with like the fake smile, when underneath they're like that fake smile, they're going, I could murder you. Um, it is their purpose. They have been paid to do a job to fulfill a purpose. It is not their pleasure. It is their, their purpose. And this is the thing that we have to hold on to because it, when we look at this sex and dating series, this is what we have to kind of land on. We have to allow God to define how our relationships go. You have to allow God, the creator of you, and we see in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, who created you with a purpose that he predestined before the foundations of the earth for you to walk in, we have to let him define this. We have to let him define how your relationships go, what they should look like. And he does a good job of this as Jesus wrestles with the Pharisees here in Matthew chapter 19. And then we're going to jump into Paul's letter that's going to help us understand this a little bit more. So Matthew chapter 19, I'm going to read... Uh, from 3 until uh, verse 12, I think, from this. And so follow along with me and see what he has to say, and then we'll connect it because you kind of understand we're covering the sex part of the dating part, but there's a, this is the question of divorce. I want you to see what he does with this. Verse 3, some Pharisees approached him to test him. They asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? Haven't you read, he replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female? And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. What is the reason? As you think about the creation story, if you haven't heard the creation story, God made everything, and he looked at man, and man, he was like, this guy is dangerous by himself. Running around naked in the woods, probably not a good play. We got to create a helper for him. Why? Because it's not good for man to be alone. This starts a process, which, which theologically, I believe that God knew from the beginning what he was going to do, but he looked at it, he's like, it's not good for him to be alone. In fact, I'm going to give him a suitable helper, and in that helper, they're going to be able to procreate, and there's going to be a bunch of them that look like them just all over the world, and they're going to give me glory, and this is for my good pleasure that we do this. So here's, here's the plan. So, so this is kind of what they're, what they're walking in. This is the reason. He also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be joined with his wife, and the two will become one flesh, because it's not good for them to be alone, so they desire companionship. It's one of the things that God has put within us, we desire relationships, verse 6. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. You've probably heard that at a wedding before. Verse 7. Why then, they asked him, did Moses command us to give divorce papers and to send her away? I love this. He told them, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts. But it was not like that from the beginning. This is not how God planned it. But he allows this because you guys are jacking this up. And so he's trying to give you like a safe way to do this. He permitted it. Verse 9, I tell you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Verse 10, his disciples said to him, if the relationship of a man with his wife is like this, is it better not to marry? Good question. Verse 11, he responded, not everyone can accept this saying, but only those 
to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made by men, and there were eunuchs who have made themselves that way because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who is able to accept it should accept it. In this passage, we we see kind of the talk about marriage, but in this, Jesus kind of wraps up marriage and singleness and dating and conflict resolution and parenting and even this idea of sex. And so his understanding of marriage is important to help us understand the most complicated, probably the most complicated like aspect of your life, this idea of sex. And, and so if you're a little embarrassed by this, I understand that this topic is kind of difficult. Um, I understand that some of you come from really, really traditional backgrounds that this may not have ever been talked about. I understand that some of you are on the other opposite side that I couldn't say anything to embarrass you. But I want to address this in what, what God does how he approaches this biblically. Because Jesus teaches here that, that marriage and sex were created to address, as we already said, this, this longing for companionship, this longing for uh, what our soul desires that is relationship. And the experience of marriage, we get, within the experience of marriage, we get this taste of how God intends for our relationship to be. And it's this idea that Genesis 2.24, where we get this from Matthew chapter 9, a man will leave his father and his mother and be joined with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then Genesis 2.25, I whispered it to my wife on our wedding day. I said, Adam and Eve were naked and they felt no shame. That's the next verse. And you're like, that was good. I'm going to write that one down. Because this is the idea. In, in the confines of the covenant of marriage, you are allowed with confidence to take your clothes off and stand before each other naked and not be embarrassed, okay? It's, it's the whole, like, if you're giving a speech, picture people in their underwear. That's a terrible idea, all right? That, around strangers, even around close friends, even around people that I would say that I love, being in the nude around them is not my play, they're not going to enjoy it. I'm not going to enjoy it. It's just not it. But in the confines of marriage, there is no shame there. And it's the, the image that God desires in our relationship with him. Why? Because God fully knows you. You cannot hide from him. And on this planet, like when we think about that, being naked in front of somebody is kind of that for us. You, you can't hide from somebody at that point. They know you in a different way for a long time. And so, so this is the image that he's given within marriage. He's going, this is why this is so important. Because it reflects probably more strongly than anything else that you do on this planet what the gospel looks like. Because hear me, ladies. As much as you think that guys are going to be difficult to live with, so are you. Amen. I, there's, their, there's their first amen. And... I think we were, we were, it was one of our resident meetings and we were talking about this um, because there's, there's an infamous, infamous house uh, involved in our ministry that apparently we're going to take over the whole street now. Um, it's, so, it's so dangerous. Just don't hang out on Lazy Lane. Um, Lazy Lane house, the OG Lazy Lane house had a unique smell to it, this musty lane. It didn't matter how many candles you, you burn. These senses were plugged in the wall. It didn't matter. That place just, there was something stuck to the wall there. In our resident meeting, I surprised Caleb when I said, hey, you know that girls are so much grosser in the bathroom than guys are. 
They, and those of us that are married, I think there's only two of us in here that are married. It's just like, yeah, it's unbelievable. You guys shed like really hairy dogs. And, it, and the girl's like, I do, I promise. Um, it's unbelievable. If, if guys can bear that, and girls, you can bear the like million other things that guys are terrible at, and there's going to be a nightmare for you to live with. This is the reflection of like how this relationship looks like. And when people look at you and go, how do you stay married to that clown? Jesus. <laughs> That's it. His grace. But then it, it, it's the reminder of us of what God has done in restoring the right relationship with us in the gospel. And so when we, when we talk about, I'm just going to put this out there, when we talk about this idea that Jesus presents about sex, it is always, always within the confines of marriage. Always. Anything outside of that is clearly sin. I'm going I'm to go on this, this is my little rant right quick. There is zero dating advice in the Bible. Zero. The only relationships that God sees when he looks down on this planet are believer to unbeliever, unequally yoked. Believer to believer, brother and sister, or married. There's no in-between. And so until the two become one flesh, he looks at you and goes, brother, sister. And so my rules for dating, we're going to talk about these a little bit more next week, would be treat that other person like you would your brother or your sister. When I walk up on you and I go, that's how you treat your sister? You nasty. That's how you treat your brother? Weird. This is, this is the biblical kind of like border that they, that they give us. And most of the time in all the biblical relationships, it was like, hey, let's get married. Okay, let's go. There wasn't this dating period. Now, understand culturally, it's a little bit different now. We're going to wrestle with the culture side of it next week. But anything outside of the confines of marriage that is tempting to you in a sexual fashion is sexual immorality. And we're going to see what the Bible says about that. But before we kind of jump into this, when we, when we look at this idea the need for companionship is met within marriage. Our relationship is most beautifully alive within marriage. That idea itself that's presented in Matthew chapter 19 pushes against three, um, what, what I'm going to call three of culture's most deeply held myths about sex. And these are myths that people are trying, to, trying desperately to believe. And uh, it's working in some spaces, but I also find it pretty humorous that it's working because... Some of you are just going to scoff at these, but they are alive and well in our culture. The first one is this, the first myth, that sex is just physical. It's a biological urge, like any other urge. People say that sex is, is like food. When, you, when you're hungry, you eat. It's like, it's like a sport. You find a partner and you go play tennis together or flag football or real football and you just lay on the ground longer. Um, you think that it's just something that you can just like find a partner and switch to. Now it's like modern day pickleball, I guess. And so you just, you just keep doing that. You can hop around. It's just something that you do for fun maybe when you're bored. These people will be like, hey, I, I didn't know him or her that well. We just had some fun for a while. It's not a big deal. There weren't any strings attached. It's just this little harmless affair. It's kind of break up the monotony of my life. It was nothing really serious. Bonus points, see if you can name this artist. I don't even know your name. It doesn't matter. You're my experimental game. It's just human nature. Somebody knows it. You're just afraid to say it. Katy Perry. I don't even know your name, but that doesn't matter because this is just an experimental game. It's just human nature. Another famous person said, I know sex without love is an empty experience, but as far as empty experiences go, it's one of the best. That was Woody Allen. P. 
People think, what's the big deal if we have a little fun? But everybody, if they were honest, if you ask them, if they went along with this myth, they may say, yeah, I go along with that. But deep down, they know that it's not true. That sex isn't just some physical thing. Why? Why, why is it that, that many people's greatest regrets in life are sexual? As a pastor, it's like, hey, I got to talk to you about something serious. 100% of the time when they lead with that, I know exactly where the conversation's going. It's never, hey, I cheated on a test. Hey, my parents are having some issues. Almost always when that happens, it's like, hey, pastor, I need to talk to you. I've never told anyone this before, but... And then they drop some sort of sexual regret on me. If it's just physical, then why is it that when a child is sexually abused, when they're an adult and they finally connect the dots, it's so difficult for them to shake off? It wasn't just that some authority figure let them down. It's so much deeper than that. If, if sex is just physical, then why is adultery so hard to get over? If sex is just physical, then why is it that men with the deepest sexual issues usually had uninvolved or missing fathers in their life? If, if sex is just physical, then why is rape so much more psychologically damaging than just physical abuse? If it's just a physical thing. The National Domestic Violence Center says that women are much more prone to report physical abuse than rape. Why? Because there's a shame and a trauma that's attached to rape that makes it so much, so much more difficult to talk about. If, if sex is just physical, then none of those things would be true. And we know that sex isn't just physical. This is the reality that, that he's pointing to that Jesus highlights in Matthew chapter 19, that marriage and sex were designed by God to address one of the deepest needs that humans have, and that's for compassion. It's for intimacy. It's to be fully seen and to be fully known and to be fully loved. And in this mysterious way that we talked about, it connects us to our relationship with God. And, and we begin to understand that he sees us and he fully knows us and he fully loves us. And so, so sex, which is supposed to be this ultimate expression in a marriage relationship, is not just a physical act. What we see here is that it is a soul act. It is a spiritual mystery more than a biological necessity. It's not just, I need some food. It's spiritual. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Flip over to there. We're going to camp out for a little while. We may jump back over to, to Matthew 19 if we have a little bit of time. But for those of you that know sex and dating series in the past, then you know 1 Corinthians 6. This is what he, what he deals with. The title of this little section is Glorifying God in Body and Spirit. And he addresses some of the things I want to look at because Paul takes on this deep soul dimension of sex and he expands on it in a unique way. And this is such a remarkable passage of Scripture because Paul penned this like 2,000 years ago. And it's still unbelievably applicable to like our culture, like he's talking to us today. And for context, the church is in Corinth. That's why it's called Corinthians. The church that Paul's writing to um, is right in the middle of a highly sexualized society. In fact, history would say that the city of Corinth had somewhere around a thousand prostitutes just running around. It was a city of about 20,000 people, which means in a room this size, if you were to do the math, there would be 10 prostitutes in here with us. It's just a weird thought, side note. Highly sexualized, lots of prostitutes running around. The most famous temple in Corinth was um, one that worshipped the goddess of Aphrodite. 
You know her as the sex goddess, and you worshiped her by going to the temple and having sex with one of the prostitutes there. Sexual promiscuity was so common in Corinth that the Greeks decided to make that a verb. They said that to Corinthianize means that you are sexually deviant. That, that, that's crazy that that's the, the word that they come up with. And so this is the society that he's in the middle of it. And, and most people in Corinth probably viewed sex a lot like we see now in our culture, that it's just simply a fulfillment of some sort of biological urge. And then in verse 13, what Paul does here is he quotes one of their one-liners about sex. He says, food is for the stomach and stomach for the food. And it's in quotations. This isn't Paul's words. This is probably a, one of their pop songs in Corinth. And what they're trying to say there is that, is that sex is just like any other physical desire. When you are hungry, you eat. When you are tired, you sleep. When you have sexual urges, you fulfill them. It's just like any other urge. And he says, no, like this is not what it's talking about. The body says God will do away with them both. However, the body is not for sexual morality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. We already highlighted this. What does he mean by sexual morality there? It's anything that happens outside of a relationship between a man and a woman in marriage, in the covenant of marriage, is sexual morality. It says our bodies are, are so much more than biological machines, just like what we see in Matthew chapter 19. Our bodies are vehicles for our souls. Our souls that have been created in the image of God. Our souls that were created to know God. And our souls that were created to know others like God knows them. The stomach was created as an instrument to process food, but, but you don't have a spiritual relationship with your food. Some of you do, probably. Man, that was a good steak. <laughs> Praise Jesus. Oh, we got some people on our staff that are that way. But, but sex is not like the stomach. God designed it to be a part of this fusion of the whole person. It, it's this physical oneness that was to be accompanied by soul oneness. And this oneness that happens within the confines of sex goes to every other area of your life. And so when you become one in that way, then you become one in your future. You become one in your finances. You become one in your children. You become one in your family. There's, there's a power to this that connects you. It's, it's not just like it's a stomach. It's, it's so much greater than that. And when you separate your physical oneness from, from the oneness of everything else just by like sleeping around, you tear apart what it means to be a human. You tear apart God's design for you to be a human at this fundamental level. Any, anybody get into like the zombie thing for a while? Anybody? Thankfully, there's some of you. Some <laughs> bowls, I expected that. Um, Finley, my oldest, is really, really into airsoft. And there's this guy that he watches on YouTube playing airsoft. And half of the airsoft games are just like zombies trying to attack them. And I think it's kind of mean because the guys that have to play the role of zombie, like if you get shot, they fall down for a second and then they get up and you just shoot them again. They're just walking dummies getting shot over and over again. What makes a zombie so scary though? They keep coming back. It's a body without a soul. It's, it's a soulless individual walking around and they want to eat you, which is kind of weird. But that's what it is. That's what, this is what he's talking about here. When you separate the oneness that God intended for you to have in a sexual relationship from everything else, that's what you become. Sex, apart from marriage, is just subhuman, and God designed for it to feel that way. 
It separates the body from the other dimensions of the soul. And, and our culture believes that Christians have such a low view of sex, not appreciating the joy that it can add to life. But on the contrary, Christians have a really, really high view of sex, recognizing that God made it as something to be experienced, not just physically, but by the whole person. It's powerful to be experienced that way. The, myth, the first myth is that sex is just physical. It leads to the second related myth, that sex can be casual. If sex is physical, then it, then it can be casual. It's not really that serious. The editor of Vox Magazine said this, the question used to be how many times you would go on a date before you have sex. Now it's how many times do you have sex before you feel like you need to go on a date. Paul's response in verse 16 of this chapter says, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? He gets really quick to the prostitute thing. And we'll see why here in a second. For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. When you have sex, you become one body with the person that you have sex with. And it's impossible to have sex in this not happen on some level. And the reason that he uses this prostitute, the reason he uses this illustration for immorality for sex with her, is he says that with a prostitute, it is the, I guess the word there is, it's the cheapest, um, most non-committal form that you can get into. Because in that encounter, you don't have to like ever see each other again, but even within that little short encounter with the prostitute, you can wreck all of these things. So at verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. All, every, excuse me, every one of your other sins hurt other people. I could walk into a room, I could punch you in the face, I could take your wallet. You have been injured to the face and you don't have as much money and I could walk away and I'm not really that offended. In fact, I just have more money. But sex isn't like that. When you have sex outside of marriage, you're hurting yourself. But what Paul is basically saying here, it's like you're taking a razor blade to your own soul by doing this. Years ago, I read this book called Hooked. It was written by a couple of neurologists as we were, we were trying to prepare a, a sermon series sort of like this. Uh, these guys weren't Christians. There was no theological agenda in the book, but they were showing... Uh, the effects of having multiple sexual partners, especially when you're young, and what that does to your brain. So casual sex or, or multiple sexual encounters actually rewires your brain in a way that makes genuine, lasting, selfless relationships much more difficult. To quote them, they say, the individual who goes from sex partner to sex partner is causing his or her brain to mold in such a way that eventually it accepts that sexual pattern as normal. The pattern of changing sex partners, therefore, seems to damage their ability to bond in a committed relationship. The kind of attachment damage that occurs after repeated sexual encounters is, in many respects, more harmful than pregnancy or STDs because it typically goes unperceived by affected individuals while causing ongoing difficulties in establishing a lifelong and satisfying relationship. Like there, there's a lot of dangers in premarital sex. We would go, STDs are one of those. Like abortion is one of those. Pregnant, all of those things are, are horrific and, and dangerous, yes. But none of them compare to this, to what is happening in your soul. And it causes you to develop an inability to, to bond with people in the way that God has designed it to. A lot of people, you've probably heard this before, use the duct tape analogy. 
You know, like duct, duct tape in and of itself, like super sticky. You, you sneak up on your bro and you like shove it on his leg. And, and he knows this is about to be pain. Like you can feel it when you move. It's just like, oh, this is terrible. You rip that thing off and you take like as much hair as you can. And hopefully you've been praying for some flesh to come along with it, right? And then you put it on somebody else. And it's still a little bit painful, but it's not as much. And what if you did that to four or five people? Eventually that duct tape, duct tape does what? This loses its stickiness. It's not really that effective. You put it on there and it just kind of falls off. This is what they're comparing this to. You have been given this ability to bond with people in this way that is designed to make you stick. But the more that you do this, the more that it loses its effectiveness. This is the, the duct tape idea. They say this, that you can, you can no more try out sex than you can try out birth. The very act of sex produces a new reality that cannot be undone. And, and here, here's the thing that I wrote down and I was scared to say to you. The term safe sex is a gigantic joke because you cannot put a condom on your soul. You can't. All of those things that we talked about, STDs and pregnancy and abortions and all of those things are, are horrific and they're good reasons for somebody to come into a school and go, this is why you should practice safe sex to avoid these things outside of marriage. But they are not the primary reason that God tells you to avoid having sex outside of marriage. It has to do with the makeup of your soul. And you can't protect that. Paul says even the cheapest forms of sex do something to the soul. Tim Keller, uh, if you're looking for a book to read to prepare you for marriage, Tim Keller wrote a book called The Meaning of Marriage. It is so solid. Um, I would encourage people to begin to read marriage books before you get married, not after. It'd be like taking your driving test after you've started driving. All right. Tim Keller describes it this way. He says, even if you are not legally married, when you're having sex with someone, you may find yourself very quickly feeling marriage-like ties. Feeling that the other person has obligations to you, but the other person has no legal, social, or moral responsibility even to call you back in the morning. This incongruity leads to jealousy and hurt feelings and obsessiveness if two people are having sex but are not married. It makes breaking up vastly harder than it should be. It leads many people to stay trapped in relationships that are not good because of a feeling of having somehow connected themselves. Many people feel like Christians are anti-sex, that we don't appreciate it enough, but the contrary, we understand the prescriptions that God gives for sex because of its power and we want to function in them. Keller goes on to say that sex outside of marriage is not a sin because it's so bad. It's a sin because we know that sex is so good. The analogy that I've heard often and I'm just going to steal is this, the idea of fire. Fire is unbelievably powerful in like a really, really cool way, right? Keeps you warm, makes really good food, and it's really destructive on the other side when it's out of control. And so if I were to ask you, hey, you want some fire in your house? What do you say? It depends on the location. Fire in the fireplace. Yeah. <laughs> All right, during Snowmageddon, that was it. Fire in the, in the stove, if you have the blessing of a gas stove. I don't. I'm jealous of all of you that may have one. It's a great place to cook food. Fire in the couch. <laughs> fire in the closet. Those are bad. All right, this is, it's, it is unbelievably powerful and unbelievably destructive, and you have to use it in the way that it is intended to. And this is probably a good time for us to talk about pornography. We know that pornography is a major problem in our culture, 
Our, our city may not have a thousand prostitutes running around, but we have tens of thousands of pornographic sites that are available on that stupid little phone in your pocket or on your computer. Do you know that porn traffic on the web every day is more than the traffic of Amazon, Netflix, and Twitter combined? That the porn industry in our country takes in more money every year than the MLB, than the NBA, than the NHL, and the NFL all combined. Over 30% of the internet, internet traffic is porn. Sex is the number one word searched for on the internet, and all of that to say that it is unbelievably common in the church. Most people think that it's not that big of a problem because it's a victimless crime. But first of all, that is someone's daughter or mom or sister or a brother, or son. Like all forms of sexual immorality, porn rewires your brain in fundamental ways. It kills your capacity for lifelong and satisfying relationships. And, I mean, scientific studies have looked at this, like the things that they talk about, how it trains your mind to start looking at the opposite sex as like a commodity, as a good that you can trade. So to you guys, we see that this is an issue that, that does affect men and women. But for you guys, when you gaze at pornography, you're looking at an image of a woman whose body you just want to use. Not a body that you want to care for, not a body that you want to love, not a body that you want to honor, a body that you want to selfishly use for your own gain. And what it does is it trains your mind to see women in a certain way. And that's how you begin to look at women in general. Because when the flat version of her becomes the 3D version of her, you still treat her that way. You begin to look at pictures of women with no recognition that they have a soul. And your mind starts to see real women in your life as objects. I can flip this on the other side. Ladies, if you want to be treated like something other than an object, then quit acting like one. Guys are just as much as fault as girls are because you want to dress in a certain way that gets guys' attention on one part of your body. And so this goes both ways. And, and you cannot say, hey, I keep my porn addiction separate from everything else because that's where you're wrong because it begins to rewire your brain. It creates these new pathways it's the example that we see from World War II. Like, I don't think that the Germans were evil, but they got unbelievably comfortable with committing the worst atrocities ever because they went years hearing that the Jews were subhuman. They're just not really humans. You can do whatever you want to to them because it doesn't really matter. So they became okay with the pain and the suffering that they inflicted on them. I don't think that they were monsters, at least to start, but once they began to think of Jews in a certain way, it made it easy for them to treat them a certain way. And this is what pornography does to us. I, I, David and Bathsheba is such a great example of this. And I was looking at this and I was trying to figure out like how we connected this. And so I'm in 2 Samuel and I begin to see this. The author of 2 Samuel does something with Bathsheba that's unbelievably important. Every time he mentions her, he goes, Bathsheba, daughter of, sister to. He, he brings relationship into her so that we can begin to think of her more than just an object that was taking a bath on a roof. And, and he talks about her as someone's wife, as someone's daughter, someone's mother. And, and he's doing that to identify Bathsheba as a person. But the more that you look at pornography, the more that you shift 
into that thinking and you begin to just think of people as objects. Porn rewires your brain to think of sex as just a selfish satisfaction of an urge. And when you train your mind that way, later when you get married, your ability to engage in sex like God has designed it as a fusion of your souls offering themselves to each other in like this self-sacrificing, self-giving love, it is destroyed. It is so diminished. And if, if you're just nursing your porn addiction on the side, you're killing your future sexual relationships. Second thing we see is that pornography destroys your own capacity for sexual fulfillment. Every time you look at porn, you rewire your soul to believe three things. A real body isn't good enough for you. Only one body isn't good enough for you. And your future wife's body won't be good enough for you. No woman, no matter how beautiful she is, can live up to what you see when you're looking at porn. No man has ever like gorged himself on porn and then put it behind him after marriage because his wife met all of his porn fantasies. I've never heard that. I've never read that. That's not something that takes place. Instead, the opposite really happens. It retrains your appetites for things. Pornography before marriage just destroys sex in marriage. And porn isn't some sort of like pastime that you guys and girls that are struggling with that goes, hey, when I get married, I can leave all of that stuff behind me. No, porn is a pathway. And it, it puts you on this path that's gonna just has the ability to destroy relationships. It rewires you. It leads to, scientifically, higher rates of depression, lower rates of sexual satisfaction. It's destroyed, no telling how many marriages. I, I, I don't think that you can just keep going over to, to some sort of addiction while you're married and then like, eventually just turn that off. That's not how your brain works. It's not how your soul works. If you have a fire in your house and you're going, it's just in the closet, that's not how fire works. Eventually, it's going to burn the house down. So men, if, if you have, talking to you, if you have this addiction, you're struggling with pornography for the sake of the relationship that you have with all future women, you need to get rid of it today. You need to fight that battle today. And there's tools and resources. We're going to talk about a couple of them here in a minute. Um, that can help you with that. Or if you can honestly sit in your chair and you can go, I don't want to get rid of it. I don't really have that desire. Then would you make a commitment that every relationship you're in from this point on that you would tell her that you're addicted to porn so she would know before you get too far in the relationship to either leave you or expect to get destroyed? Be man enough to do that if you're not man enough to lay it down. Let's keep going. You like there's more? Porn is more enslaving to people than heroin. What is scary is that the porn industry markets itself to 12 and 13-year-olds, and it takes three days for a 12-year-old to become an addict. That's how dangerous it is. But we also see a lot of cool tools out there, and some of you are like, well, I can't live without my phone. I can't live without my computer. Well, there's this thing um, that a lot of people use that... I've helped people use in the past that is an unbelievable tool that people on our staff even will put it on their computers, not because we don't trust what they're doing, but because it's so dangerous and we would much rather see the victory than to see marriages destroyed and, and pastoral jobs destroyed and stuff like that. It's this thing called Covenant Eyes. And um, you can get 10 subscriptions for $10 a month. I guarantee there's 10 people in here that are struggling with it. You guys could band together, you pay a dollar a month for this. And if you 10 can't afford it, I will gladly pay for it. 
This is how serious this is. You should do everything that you can to protect yourself from it. Now, I've thrown a lot at you guys, and rightly so. Um, But for you ladies in the room, the, the porn addiction is not as great, although it is still an issue. You guys have now been tricked by society to think that romance novels that are just like soft porn for women like Fifty Shades of Grey that became the highest-selling fiction book, that that stuff is okay. It is soft-core porn for you that is doing the same thing. It's rewiring. I'll, I'll take my shot here because I've done it in the past. For those of you that throw these parties and watch The Bachelor, are you kidding me? There is, there is zero desire, ladies, that you would want a guy who had 24 girlfriends. But our guys see you celebrating that and gathering all your friends together and throwing bachelor parties, which is a weird thing. And so they want to be like that. They want to be a a playboy. They want to act a certain way to maybe get your attention. And so, yes, like porn is unbelievably dangerous, but the things that we just allow to wiggle into that space are so dangerous also. And I think they're detestable to the Lord. And we have to fight these things. Every other sin a person commits outside of the body but sexual, the sexually immoral person sins against his own body and her own body. And so at this point, like I know <laughs> I'm feeling it too. You're feeling overwhelmed because I've just dropped a lot on you and you, you're, you're, you're hanging out in these mistakes. And, and I want to tell you that this is why Jesus came. This is why Jesus dies on a cross. This is why Jesus raises again. And, and this, this is the sweet spot of this. Because in his resurrection, sometimes we don't understand, like, okay, he died on the cross and he paid the penalty of my sin. In his resurrection, we see this idea that there is no deadness that he could not be resurrected from. And there is no dead sin in your life that he can't restore in you. Joel 2.25 is such a sweet verse that you should grab a hold of. He says, I can restore all that the locusts have eaten. The locusts were a, were a sign of judgment and destruction in the Old Testament. He said, everything that's been destroyed, I can make new. And he longs to do that for you. It's, it's why Jesus was called the man of sorrows, which means that all of these things that you so struggle with, he takes on himself and he makes those things new. Though your sins are scarlet, he makes them white as snow. And so for those of you that are like struggling through this, he, he didn't just come to warn you. Jesus' life wasn't just like, hey, Pay attention to your sin. Live like me. Because if you don't turn from your wicked ways, you are all doomed. No, what he did is he came to restore. He came to make new. Like, I know your sexual sin has probably caused you a lot of sorrow, but Jesus is called that man of sorrows because he takes those things on and he longs to bring restoration. I know a lot of you probably heard this from, from our friend up north, Matt Chandler. That that True Love Waits rally and the goober was up on the stage and, and he was like, hey, I'm going to teach these people about like, the dangers of sex before marriage. And he gives the first person in the row that rose. says, hey, this is what I want you to do. I want you to smell it. I want you to feel how soft the petals are. I want you to, to interact with that rose for a second. Hand it to the next person. I want all of you to smell it and to see all of these things about it. And so he talks for 30 minutes while this rose is being passed around the room. And he gets to the back. And after his 30 minutes, he goes, hey, who has that rose? And this person walks up there, and this rose is beat to death. The petals, half of them are gone, just limp, just kind of hanging over there. And it, it looks not, it's not the rose that he started with. 
Matt's in the audience at this point, and he knows what this guy's fixing to do. Matt's a brand new believer. This guy says, holds up this rose. He goes, remember how pretty it was before? Who wants this rose now? Trying to prove this point that your sexual immorality is going to turn you into this. And Matt's sitting in the back of the room, and in his mind, he just wants to scream, like, Jesus wants the rose. So it's what he came for. He came for that rose. He, he, he wants that thing. And so whatever your sexual immorality thing that you're struggling with, like Jesus wants that. He breaks the power of sin. He, he cancels it. This is why, well, you go back over to Matthew's genealogy of Jesus. This is why it's so important. What's included in Jesus' genealogy? A prostitute and the line that continued through Bathsheba. And so you, you can't tell me that your sexual sin can't be restored. It's in the genealogy of Jesus. And so whatever your struggle is, what Jesus did is he came to make those things new. Through your sexual mistakes, God brings about this newness that is found in Christ to your situation. And this is what I started with. Like, this is why this is so difficult, because it's a dual purpose. Like, I want to show you what's at stake in your sexual sin. I want to show you, when we talk about sex and dating, why it's so important. But I also want to proclaim to you that Jesus heals and Jesus restores, and Jesus makes all things new. And in that, you have to put away this myth that sex is casual. There are limitations that God has put on sex, and he does it for your own good. And then a lot of you are going to go, I'm forgiven. I don't want to miss out on anything. So I'm going to continue in this. I know God tells me to wait to have sex, but I I don't want to miss it. And yeah, I... I can prove biblically that you're going to experience forgiveness in that continued sexual sin because God really is that good. But I also want to prove to you biblically that forgiveness is painful. And in that forgiveness, you're still going to have scars. And if you're sitting there going, well, I'm going to continue in this. And so the question I would have for you is, do you really know Jesus? Because you understand that once you have an awareness of that sin, when you continue to practice it, you're just nailing him to the cross over and over again. And so how can you love Jesus and still pursue what put him on the cross? 1 Corinthians 6, 19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You've been purchased from sin by his blood. We have a spirit in us. These are things that we should avoid engaging in. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral or idolaters or adulterers will inherit the kingdom of God. Marriage is honorable to all and the bed undefiled, but the sexually immoral and the adulterous God will judge. It's Hebrews 13. God is very serious about our sexual sin and he's calling us not to play games. And so the, the question really is, like, do we trust God enough to do it God's way? Because I know many college students, I see it all the time, say that they're going to get serious about their relationship with God later, but they don't realize what they're giving up now. And God always gives the best to those who wait and trust on Him. I'm glad that I don't have to say this. Dr. Danny Aiken, who's the president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, wrote this in his book. It's called God on Sex. I want you to hear this, and we'll get close to closing here in a second. It's not surprising that a University of Chicago study reports that those doing it God's way report the most satisfaction with their sex lives. When University of Chicago researchers set out to discover which religious denominations have the best sex, they learned that the faithful 
don't do all of their shouting in church. Yeah, your eyes should get a little bigger. Conservative Protestant women reported by far the highest satisfaction. Mainline Protestants and Catholics lagged five points behind. Those with no religious affiliation were 33% more behind, and Unitarians may not wish to read any further. Sexually active singles have the most sexual problems and get the least pleasure out of sex. Men with the most liberal attitudes about sex are 75% more likely to fail to satisfy their partners. The most sexually satisfied demographic group of them is that of Protestant married couples between 50 and 59. <laughs> Cosmopolitan touts Cosmo's 20 favorite sex tips ever. We have the wall-shaking, earthquaking moves that will make your bed end up clear across the room. However... The statistics suggest that if you are really interested in the best sex possible, find a born-again babe and keep her around until she's 50 because that's when the best will come. <laughs> Y'all like, I'm going to that seminary. <laughs> Here, here's the idea in this, and we don't think this way. If you, if you do it God's way, hear me, God doesn't tell you to avoid sexual morality because he wants to keep you from something. God is telling you to avoid sexual morality because he wants to bless you with something. This is how this works. He's a good God. He's not hiding things from you. He just knows the best way that it should function. And so the last myth as we close, we, we've, looked, we've looked at this a little bit. Jesus is teaching in Matthew chapter 19. This last myth is that sex is the best part of life. A lot of people will say that sex is the best part of life. Our culture says sex is an essential part of life and you can't be happy without it. And I think this is why in Matthew 19, Jesus includes the part about the eunuchs and his teaching on marriage. There are eunuchs who have been so from birth. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. There are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Remember that eunuchs are people who, for various reasons, can't get married. And Jesus makes them equal participants in the kingdom because marriage isn't the ultimate point of your existence on this planet. The family of God is. And soon enough, in eternity, none of you are going to be married. He says, that which is partial and temporary will be given away to that which is permanent and eternal, Christ and the church. And so you're probably going to endure, hopefully you are enduring right now, chapters of your life that are without sex. And maybe God is calling some of you to be single for life. Or maybe you end up in a marriage that's just not so great and that's just the practice that you are in. And yes, I understand that that's unbelievably difficult, but it's something that you can endure. And more than that, you can find real joy in life. And so if sex never becomes part of your earthly journey, that's okay. The most joy-filled, happy man to ever walk on this planet never had sex. His name was Jesus. Eunuchs represent single people who can still find full satisfaction in the family of God. And so waiting is possible. He's just clearly saying this. I, I close with this story. Christopher Yawn grew up same-sex attracted. He knew about God, and he asked God to give him different desires, but God didn't. For a while, he pursued an openly gay lifestyle, thinking that it would satisfy him. But through a series of bad decisions, he hit rock bottom, and he ended up in prison. And it was there that God confronted him, not with a change of sexual orientation, but with an offer of a forever family with his son. And this is how Christopher puts it. 
My identity is not gay, not ex-gay, or even heterosexual for that matter. My sole identity is as a child of the living God made in the image of Jesus Christ. In that prison cell, I realized that I had to make a decision. Either abandon God and pursue sexual freedom or abandon the sexual freedom and live as a follower of Jesus Christ. My decision was obvious. I chose to become a child of God. And I used to think and I used to hear that to please, that in order to please this Christian God, I had to become straight. I had to make myself feel heterosexual feelings. But even with heterosexual feelings, I still struggle with sin and I need to be redeemed. And so that should not be my ultimate goal. Our goal as Christians, no matter what feelings we have, must be holiness. And that's only found in the righteousness of Christ. Our identity must be solely in his righteousness, not in how sexually pure we feel. As I began to live this life of surrender and obedience, God called me into full-time ministry while I was in prison of all places. And this guy will openly tell you that he's still same-sex attracted. It is still something that is going to be a part of his life. It is still a temptation in his life and in a posture of waiting for his redemption that is going to come in eternity. He says that that's okay. Why? Because sex is not ultimate. It's just this echo a pointer of what God has for you in his forever family. So it's not something that is a part of your life. You can still have like a happy, joy-filled, meaningful life. But I, I know in this room, many of you desire those things. I want a family. I want a husband. I want a wife. I want to experience this thing. And, and God has created it for an unbelievable pleasure for you, but for his glory and to reflect the gospel when you do it right. And so this is what we're going to close with. The invitation tonight, the band, you guys can sneak up there if you want. The invitation tonight is, is pretty simple. Those of you in the room, I challenge you to make it a promise to wait. Make it a promise to wait until marriage. And you're like, well, I've already messed that up. It doesn't matter. You make a promise to wait. And in that, in that promise, you tell somebody. If, if this is something that you're struggling with now, if sexual issues are an issue for you now, then repent and get forgiveness and have a conversation with somebody. If, if there has been a sexual sin that, that you're struggling with, receive that forgiveness. Make a new start. You may, you may even want to pursue counseling in some of those areas. If, if you've never experienced a relationship with Jesus and this is the thing that's pushing you to that, then then what sexual sin has done is highlighted your brokenness and your need for forgiveness and your need for restoration that's only found in Jesus. If you have a, if you have a pornography addiction, let's, let's battle that. Surround yourself with people who are going to help you battle that. And then I'll be even bold to say this. If, if there's been abuse in your life, we want to be a church that cares a church that cares really well for the abused. And I, I need you to hear this, that this is not something you have to walk through alone. We desire to be a resource and to walk beside you and to, to help you experience healing in, in your relationship with Christ, to help you get some help that may be above us. But it's worth this battle because it's, it's so unbelievably important. And we have to deal with this side of it before you can ever even consider dating well. So tonight you have the freedom to kind of wrestle with this. I, I, I don't know. It's been one of those days where the enemy has just been like launching hand grenades over the wall. Um, 
me specifically. And I, I don't know what he wants to do tonight, and, but I want there to be a freedom here. And so we're, we're going to sing two songs. And I don't think there's going to be much instruction from the stage outside of them singing. But there's a lot of space in this room. There's a lot of space at this altar, but the, the altar is, is just a symbol of a place that you can go and pray. And so you can spread out all over this place and you can battle, you can grab a friend. Um, this is not something you have to wait until the, the song is over to begin to contend for. And if we have to close with you crying and weeping in a corner and, and making worth this, then we gladly will and we'll just extend that. But I want there to be a freedom in this place. I'm going to pray for that. And I want you to do business in whatever way God is calling you to, because hear me, it's worth it. It's something that, that the enemy intends for evil. It's something that's unbelievably powerful. And it's something that God has given us clear instruction on. We just have to lean into it. So let me pray for you. Uh, God, in all of that, where I, I know that there is a shame that's sitting over some people, there's a guilt that's sitting over some people, there's a fear that's sitting over some people. That, that stuff doesn't have a place here. It's a lie of the enemy that's resting. And so by your spirit, would you erase those things? And would you, would you bring freedom to people that they can bring dark spaces into the light? And we would see healing. And so for those that are sitting in that, would, would we trust your promises? that you are a man of sorrows. That we have a, a great high priest who, who is compassionate in all of those things because you've been tempted in all of those ways and you know, like you, you know what we're wrestling with. And the power that is found in the freedom of walking away from that that can bring about healthy marriages and healthy relationships and healthy reflections of the gospel. May we lean heavily into that. So, so would your spirit bring freedom? Whatever way that looks like tonight, have your way. Bring healing, we trust. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm not going to tell you to stand if you want to stand and sing and move and all of that, but we're just going to sing for a little bit, and then we'll come back and close.